My name is Richard Morellis, and I want to welcome you to the Prison Post. This is your podcast for conversations surrounding the need to reform prisons from the perspective of formerly incarcerated people, community members, and leaders in the restorative justice movement. The Prison Post will feature an episode every Wednesday with people who are in the fight to restore lives and heal communities. All right. Welcome, everyone. Welcome back to the Prison Post. Now, if any of you have seen our previous episodes, you might notice a little change in the format today. Because today, I, Jason Bryant, am here as the host, not the co-host. And the reason for that is because we have a very special guest today. (laughs) Someone who you should be familiar with by the name of Richard Morellis. Yes, this is the Richard Morellis Hour. Hey, Rich. How you doing? Doing good. Great to be with you. Good, good. Kind of weird. It's kind of weird being on the other side. Okay. (laughs) Don't wait. It gets, just wait. It gets better. It gets better. Try not to judge you. (laughs) No, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not the one on the receiving end today, buddy. It's you. Uh, yeah, I know. So before we get into your story, I want to tell everyone a, a little bit about you and uh, some of the things that probably haven't been shared as the host about your journey so far. And then we'll get a little bit deeper into your story, if that's okay. Sound good? Absolutely. Okay. So Richard is a dynamic public speaker and an expert communicator with advanced leadership and communication certifications with the world-recognized Toastmasters International. This is actually a club, a speaking club, that he helped to found at CTF Soledad way back in, what year was that, Rich? 2011. 2011, great. He's also a certified career coach, having graduated under the tutelage of master coaches Christina Lee, and Dr. Yvette Hall of Paradigm 360 LLC. He's an inspiring leader and powerful orator who delivered over 60 transformational coaching seminars and workshops. Richard possesses the uncanny ability to capture a room's attention while conveying impactful messages to any audience. Having spent over 20 years inside of the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, Richard made abundant contributions as a co-founder of the Inside Solutions Think Tank and lead intern for the crop organization's programs offered within the correctional institution. Richard graduated cum laude, which means with honors, with a Bachelor of Arts in Healthcare Management from California Coast University. He's currently only a few classes away from his MBA. He has an advanced certification as an alcohol and other drug counselor, uh, AOD for short, KDAC2, to the recovery community. He's a graduate of Initiate Justice's Institute of Impacted Leaders and has spoken as a criminal justice reform advocate at the California State Capitol on four separate occasions. Richard is also the only known incarcerated person to earn the status of associate trainer from John Maxwell's Equip Leadership and its million leader mandate. I want to hear about more, more about that a little bit later, Rich. After being found suitable for parole at his initial board of parole hearings, Richard was released on March of 2019. Today, he serves as the Director of Communications at the Crop Organization and the host of the Prison Post podcast, except for today. I'm the host today. (laughs) That's right. He speaks at churches, recovery groups, and trains transformational and empowering seminars and workshops for public and community colleges. Welcome to your show, The Prison Post, Richard Morales. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, well, I, mean, I don't know if I have much say so in it, but I'm glad you're here. 
we'll get all the crop crop guys here. We're gonna meet okay. you gone. That's and, right. Uh, we'll That's get right. Ken and Matt and uh, Ted to Ted. go, and maybe awesome. uh, Damani and Carrie. Yeah, we got to hear those stories. So that's that's great, and uh, you know, you know, they say leaders go first. So today's yeah. your opportunity to uh, be in the. We're not going to call it the hot seat because it's not hot. It's like it's it's the warm seat because it's an inviting space for people to share their stories and right. talk about their transformation and the work they do. Yeah. And and one of the things that I think our listeners, our viewers haven't had an opportunity to do yet is learn about your job outside of the prison post. I okay. know. I mean, you, you know, you, you this is which which episode is this? Uh, it's total. This is the 28th video podcast, but we have 20. about 47 uh, all together, including our incarceration and transformational stories that uh, re- I recorded uh, before you got out with those who are yeah. uh, still our brothers who are still incarcerated. See, the, the fact the fact that, you know, those numbers, it proves why you're the better host right there. <laughs> <laughs> that being said. Richard is, as I, as I said a moment ago, he's also the director of communications for the crop organization and his responsibilities as such are not limited to the podcast. So if you wouldn't mind, it, I think it would be great if you would create some space here to share a little bit of what you do for crop as a director of communications. Yeah, definitely. Uh, crop has given me a tremendous opportunity to, to work for them ever since the day, well, about a month after I was released. Um, our chairman of the board, uh, Mitch Gray, uh, pretty much gave me a shot fresh out and uh, started me off at a decent livable wage, uh, which was such a blessing coming out after 21 years. Uh, I didn't know what to expect. Uh, you know, we had the audacious idea to start off with a podcast, but a year later with you and Ted coming home and, and, and Matt and, uh, and, and Ken Oliver, I mean, here we are, you know, and so as far as being the director of communications, a lot of people would think, you know, this podcasting is full time and believe me, it could be a full time job. Uh, we're, we're, we're barely scratching the surface here, but it's probably five or six, five to 10% of, of what I actually do. Um, I work on a crop organization's website. I'm currently being uh, mentored by a, by our platform provider, Aloha Cloud Digital Networks, and um, she's helping me work on the back end of the website. Um, what does that mean so, exactly? So when you see a front page of the of the website, like if you go to the home page, or or you see our, our restorative programs, our events page, podcast page, media center, that's what you see on the front when you click those those home buttons. Okay. But for that to come up, you have to uh, log in, get to the back side of it, so that you can design those things, mm. and then we're able to change the designs, change the layout, change the you know the pictures, the videos, the captions. Um, our color scheme, our, our font scheme, everything to do with the way it looks. Uh, for those of you who, have, who haven't been on our website lately, I encourage you to go at croporganization.org. You'll see that we have our live Twitter feed at Crop Organization One. Um, uh, it's up on our front page as well, so you can see some of the things we're doing with the um, uh, with our legislative side, our policy side, with the AB uh, 328, AB 628. So to be able to do that, do that is a delicate process. I didn't realize how how difficult it was and how easy it could be once you get the hang of it as well. Mm-hmm. So you know, <clears throat> I come out of prison. I didn't go through you know the coding programs in San Quentin, and I, I didn't read one coding book. I didn't know anything about coding, and I'm not doing coding. 
uh, Aloha Cloud Digital uh, Platform is is placed with a, our host, and they have simplified the process so that the average person can go on there and learn. And it's a matter of drag and drop system, um, and that makes it a lot easier. But what's what's as, the most challenging? What's the most challenging part of it, though? Is there is there any challenges to? I mean, we're talking about someone who served a little over. 21 years in prison coming out you've yeah. been out for a little over two now and you've been dealing with this website development i mean that's basically what it is right for a little more than maybe three or four months is that fair yeah, yeah about three or four months so what's the most challenging part of being i mean really the the guy behind the scene and in front of the scene of, of a website <clears throat> i think the most challenging thing is there are literally a hundred things that need to be done. Mm. And uh, on the surface, the average person goes there and sees events and how they could be scheduled and past events and upcoming events, the podcast. And it looks like it's the way it's the way in which we intend, but it hasn't even got to the level of greatness that in, in the way that we intend. So as far as like our, all the work that we've done in the past, we want to bring that on, highlight it, show it, uh, show it on the past event section, all the upcoming events that we have, whether it's on the policy side or with the ready for life program that you lead, um, um, our associates, um, letting everybody know our constantly evolving message. Mm. Well, our static message of who we are and what we do, and then the evolving ways in which we're growing, what we're doing, who we're working with. And um, that that's you know changes week to week. You know, a couple of weeks ago, right. we weren't we we weren't um, uh, we just came on board for you know AB six twenty eight and workforce development bill. So the next thing you know, we need a policy page, and then it needs to be built out. So that there's no one to to tell me, hey, here's here's everything that we need there. I need to go and do the research. What do other policy pages look like? What could our policy pages po- policy page look like? Um, can we get some video? Can we get some audio, you know, embedding that video, embedding the audio, um, creating a blog, um, spreading it through social media, getting awareness. You know, we want people to, to be going to our website and staying there for as long as possible. So eventually we'll have a robust blogging program. Uh, I mean, uh, area where people come and blog about all the different aspects of what we're doing. And, um, you know, it, it, it's literally a full-time job and you can do it 12 hours a day for two or three months before getting caught up to where, for the way, for the way we would want it to look. And then it's right. a matter of maintaining it from there and, and, uh, uh, you know, continuing with the evolution process. So it sounds to me like you've got two full-time jobs, a podcast and website management, development management. What else do you do? Uh, okay. <laughs> well, we we just so happen to have um, what, eight nine social media accounts. Okay. So as director of communications, my job is to work with all of our um, is to lead our, our social media accounts, and so all those who follow us at Crop Organization on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and LinkedIn or, or Crop Organization's podcasts, the prison posts on you know uh, Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn, and we're going to be building a, uh, a new one on uh, Instagram as well pretty soon here to do the work of keeping those updated on a weekly basis, on a, on a daily basis. I work with, um, we have a communications team, a small team of interns, three people, um, young people, graduates of Sacramento State University, UC Davis. Uh, we have Kendra, Harjeet, and uh, Amy. 
and you know they um give their heart and soul they know a lot more about instagram than than i, than I ever did you know they were raised in a generation where they came up using it. And these are all things that I had to learn from scratch. So we talk about it. We get on our Canva accounts. We design our, we design our posts. We, we come up with our captions based on uh, what represents crop well, well, and we have team meetings uh, twice a week on zoom and we build. And just recently, like when, when uh, another thing that needs to go on with social media is when we were, uh, we joined as part of as a director of communications whenever we uh, sponsor a bill co-sponsor a bill become a part of a, a coalition for bills so with ab328 and we, we joined jan court who's the assembly member choose um um uh, chief um i forget the term but um, staffer staffer chief staffer and her communications team so we would we work together with their communications team and then we designed um uh, our posts, our language for our Facebook uh, posts, uh, for our tweet storm and just work with them. And with also with, uh, putting out stories for the Sacramento Bee. Um, and, uh, so, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lot of work behind the scenes as far as I didn't know anything about what's Canva. So, right. Yeah, you know, now we get a Canva account at Crop and go in there mm-hmm. and learn, learning how to use it, how to, how to, how to post what's buffer. You know, Buffer is a system that, that we have that allows us to post on multiple social media channels at once. Um, what's Twitter? Um, what, who are our audiences on Twitter? Who are our audiences on Instagram, on Facebook, uh, on LinkedIn? How do you how do you reach different audiences with different messages? Um, right. And uh, so there's a lot of a lot of things to be done. Every one of those posts have to be written. Um, all of the all the posts have to be, um, the captions have to be written. The posts have to be designed. Um, and just like when, uh, you know, your story came out with, uh, with Lisa Ling on This Is Life with Lisa Ling and, mm-hmm. and President Obama uh, does a tweet on January 1st and it's a Sunday, you know, uh, it, we got to move it. We got to go. President Obama just came out with a tweet. Let's go. It's time to go to work. I, so I, I remember you saying you made some comment to me about thanks for more work, Jay. i remember it was a sunday morning first of the year having having some coffee in the morning um just having a a nice conversation with someone uh, and um next thing you know the tweet comes out and it's like go to work two three hours straight getting it out there you know spreading the word of uh of the amazing message that president obama was willing to share about what crop organization did the work we did with lisa ling with palma school with scion green with our men built for others scholarship, our men built for others book, him seeing it, the move, we feel that it had a strong impact on this nation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and we when I started all these accounts, we had you know no followers, and you know now we're getting close to a thousand on 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 Facebook for crop, uh, close to a thousand on the Prison Post, and close to four hundred on YouTube, and and um, close to 600 on Instagram, and we wanted to continue to grow. So I want to encourage everybody, follow us, subscribe. Um, you know, uh, some other organizations have been around a lot longer, and there's a lot of things that I'm learning, a lot of things that I miss. It's like when the Washington Post came out with the article that you had done with them, you know, I could have reached out to them and said to tag us, you know, and that, that could have helped. 
but um, I had to learn about tagging. So right, writing right. the writing the post, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of work which behind is, the scenes, which is, which is distinct from what we knew about tagging back when we were in our teens and twenties. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally different yeah. today. Yeah, definitely not spray spray cans on walls. No, you know what I mean? No. So I want to ask you, Rich, because I mean, you're you're a hardworking guy. You got a, there's a, a few lot other of things out too. Oh, you I'll got more to tell us about? <laughs> okay, we'll oh, yeah. later. Because yeah, right definitely. now, right now, what I hear is three things. I hear that you know you're responsible for the podcast, for our, for Crops website presence, and for the social media campaign, which is robust. Which of those three things would you say is your favorite that you get the most enjoyment from? And you don't have to say the prison post because we're on the prison post. <laughs> I want to know from your heart. Oh man, that's tough. Uh, I'll I'll answer it in this way. The, the website is the most challenging, but it feels good to be challenged. And at coming out of prison, I felt like, okay, here's my capacity. We talk a lot about what is your, your lid, the capacity of what you can do. Mm-hmm. And I had this idea of myself that my capacity is right here. Working on the website and learning and, and recording Zoom videos with, with our hosts, uh, Ellen, and then going back and watching the videos on how to do uh, what she just taught me, mm-hmm. I feel has lifted my capacity. Mm-hmm. I feel it's lifted my capacity to areas that I never dreamed in 21 years of incarceration that I'd be able to do, and, I'm, and I still know that I'm barely scratching the surface. So right. it's challenging, and I, and I, and I wish I could um, do that, you know, 12 hours a day for about six months so that I could get super efficient and effective and fast. The most rewarding though, I would say is, 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 is the podcast because I love people. Uh, I love to work with you and I love the way that we uh, are able to connect with people and draw out their story. Everyone has a story. Everyone has power that they can give and, uh, a positive way to make a strong impact in this world. And so many of the people that we interviewed, they are all doing it in their own way. Right. From the first episode up until now, these are all movers and shakers, hard workers, people that are committed, that have given their lives to service. You know, we have a special place in our heart for each and every one of them. And it's, and it's, it's really special to see these people that they are self-motivated. They are driven to give back. They wake up every morning and, you know, they don't have to be told what to do. They, they do it because they want to do it. They do it out of gratitude. They do it as a, as some of them do it as a form of amends because that's, they can't do anything else. That's sure. their mindset now. Give back. Sure. sure. That's great. <clears throat> so I just, I, I mean, to, to some people, they might listen to this and say, man, that guy, he's, he's doing a lot. Like I mean, we haven't even gotten to your personal life, which I'd like to conclude talking a little bit about that because you've got some things coming up this year uh, that you might want to share. Um, but you weren't always that way. And I know this because I've known you for a long time and I've heard the stories about what your grandpa used to call you about being a chichi baby. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, you went there. I went there. So if, if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to, I I'd like, I'd like to take a trip back. I want to take a trip back to little rich Let's go. and, uh, you know, share with us, you know, how you ended up in prison. Um, like the thinking, the, the habits you had and 
and then we'll talk about you know how you made that transformation and and, and that switch went off where you said you know what, I'm gonna be a, a man of value, uh, a man built for others, and uh, I would I would really appreciate you sharing that story because I think there's incredible value in it. Okay, feel free to stop me anywhere along the way and, and add any questions, but. You know, my mom, my mom had me when uh, she was 17 years old and um, she didn't know how she was going to do it. Uh, um, she didn't have all the means in the world, but she made a commitment to God that I'm going to raise this son. And, you know, up until the age of 10, I, I always felt loved by my mom. I felt affection. I felt um, we were, had a close relationship with my grandparents and my mom, my grandma, my grandpa. They instilled great morals and values, you know, um, and it taught me how to treat people, how to love people. And I think most of the, the best qualities of um, when I'm at my best with empathy and compassion and service, it comes from watching them. Mm. My, grand, my grandpa's a Vietnam vet, four tours in Vietnam. He has been a man of service for 50 years. He still volunteers for six or seven veterans organizations at 75 years old. You know, he's been retired for 20 years and he, and you still can't slow the guy down. My grandma's the same way. She's 80, tough to slow her down. She's always giving. She's, she's, she, she makes blankets and tote bags and, and um, neck massagers. And she just go, 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 give, 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 give until it hurts. My mom's the same way. She loves people, loves to see them smile, loves to give. So, um, yeah, I felt, I felt super loved. And, um, along the way though, um, something about my grandpa, why, why, why he had called me Chichi Bay because when I was, a uh, uh, you know, probably up until the age of 12 or 13, who knows me, any chance that I could uh, stay the night at their house, my grandparents' house early in the morning, I'd go crawl in bed with my grandma and, and nuzzle right, nuzzle right up, you know, in her, in her, in her, in her bosom and in her, in her neck and, you know, grandma, Nana's boy and, and mama's boy. Uh, so, you know, he, and my grandpa was always like, when you, how long are you going to, how long are you going to be, <laughs> how long are you going to be doing that? You know, get outside, let's, let's, let's wash these cars, you know, let's we'll make some work. Let's, yeah. you know, let's, he was trying to teach me some lessons. Mm -hmm. So all those lessons that he were teaching me, they were in me, but I didn't start applying them until later in life. I remember my grandpa giving me that nudge at four 30 in the morning and, 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 and I, he'd say, Hey, Rich, hey, Rich, you're going to sleep all day? Are you going to sleep all day, Rich? And I remember opening my eyes and, and looking at the window to see, like, what time is it? And it would right. still be dark outside. And I was like, what time is it? <laughs> he said, it's time to get up. It's time to get up. You know, you, you're not going to have your nana in your life all your life. You know, you got to make breakfast. And um, so um, and so then he would want to get the cars done. He'd say, you know, let's, let's go wash all the cars before it's noon, before it gets hot. That way we can go do what we want to do. He was the one saying, do what you have to do so that you can do what you want to do. You can pay now and play later, or you can play now and pay later. What do you want to do? Right. And, you know, if I would have taken and listened to his advice and my Nana's advice and my mom's advice, you know, I probably wouldn't have went to prison. Hmm. But somewhere along the way, you know, after in sixth grade, started hanging out with the wrong crowds and, and um, drinking, smoking weed, and, and pretty much all throughout junior high and high school, just continued to head down that path. And uh, I was a, a decent student, and I always heard the terms, if you would only apply yourself. You're so right. smart if you would only apply yourself. I thought teachers would just be nice. Right. I thought they were just, um, I didn't think they were being honest. I thought they were being nice and saying what parents and teachers wanted to, right. were supposed to say. 
what was the, and, what, what, um, would you, what would you say was the source of the temptation? <clears throat> uh, I wanted to fit in. I wanted that acceptance, affection, attention. Um, right around the age of 10 and a half, my mom got married to a guy that um, I don't think that um, I think he was a, a good man in, in a lot of ways. He had four daughters, never raised a son. And uh, I just never connected with him. A lot of it was my own rebelliousness. Um, and, and he had his flaws too. And I don't need to spend a lot of time harping on them. But one thing that happened to me for, for those, for about four years there was I felt that that love, acceptance, attention, affection that was common was a part of our family for so long. I felt that was being stripped away and mm -hmm. I was being pushed aside. And that probably wouldn't be my mom's story. And, and my mom was in her late twenties and nobody gives anybody a parenting manual and she was doing the best she could with what she had. And, and she loved me. And, um, and, um, so she was finding her own way as well. I don't, I don't blame her or I don't blame him anymore. And, um, but at some point I just said, you know what, I'm going to seek out. I made my own choices, seek out attention and affection and uh, acceptance and in the wrong crowds. Right. Um, and, and I continue to do that all throughout, uh, high school. Yeah, they, they so, say that. I, I think they say that. Uh, you know, the best parents do the best they can with what they have. Yeah, right? definitely. So yeah, and I can look back now and and um, you know definitely realize my own part. But during that time, uh, you know, the guys didn't say "I love you," "Merry Christmas," "Happy Birthday." Uh, wasn't a wasn't a hugger and all those things, and I just took that as rejection. And maybe it had nothing to do with rejection, but had to do with the way he was raised and, sure. um, and, 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 you know, his own trauma and his own limiting beliefs and, and sure. those types of things. So I didn't know that at the time and the way I interpreted it was, you know, you don't like me, you don't want, you don't want me around. So screw you, you know, mm -hmm. I'll be rebellious and I'll make your life miserable. And, um, so, but I think the real, real, um, the moment of really going downhill was halfway through my senior year, mm. um, being invited to use methamphetamines for the first time. And there was a friend who asked me to use with him being the life of the party at, a, uh, was something that I desired. most of it came through drinking in high school and uh, as often as I could, as much as I could. Um, and you know, the people wonder like, well, how come some people are social drinkers and some aren't? And for me, I mapped that back to, uh, I remember one of my uncles giving me uh, my first shot of tequila, probably at 12 years old, mm. and asking, and him asking me, no, I remember asking him, how many of these can you drink? So it's probably like a, a, probably a double shot of tequila. And I remember asking him, I, and I thought like that drinking was a rite of passage. You know, when, when you can stand around the men with that red and white, Budweiser can when you can have a shot with the fellas, you know, with the men. That that was that meant something. That you were grown. Like I'm, I'm one yeah. of you now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I wanted that. I wanted them to say, "Come on over here. You know, you can hold your mud, have a beer, have a couple beers." But I remember the day when I had that first shot, and he, and I asked him, "How many can you have?" And I think I meant like, "How many can you have before you get sick and get freaking poisoning and stuff?" <laughs> you know. Right. But uh, and and I remember him slamming his hat on the table oh shoot sorry and he said hey if you're gonna drink three you might as well drink 33 mm. and to this day i don't know what exactly he meant 
But the way I interpreted what he meant was, if you're going to drink, you don't ask questions. You right. Drink, you drink to get drunk and don't ask questions or don't do it. Right. Right. So as often as I can remember, you know, my mom would say that too. How come you never became a social drinker? And right. I think that's where it started. Like, you know, you drink, you drink to get drunk. That's the purpose. And, you know, I never, I never understood the people who would say, oh, I'm starting to feel it. I'm going to go pour it out. Right. So, like, uh, <laughs> I got to stop, right? Yeah. That but doesn't make sense to me. Right, right. No, definitely not. So, um, that's why, you know, June 10th will be 21 years for me with no, no alcohol, no drugs. And, um, that was the last time I drank in prison, uh, June 10th, threw up all over the place. And I just realized that even then, um, when I experimented with it, with it in there for a time that as soon as I started going, I just kept going. So right. I think if I started out here, you know, it start off and with, 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 um, you know, one or two a night or one a night. And next thing you know, I'd probably be doing it every single day after a tough day at work. Let me take the edge off. Right. And it'd probably increase. So what's the point? I enjoy who I am sober. Um, I, I, I like my sobriety and there's other ways to deal with uh, the stressors of work or relationships and life. And mm -hmm. uh, I feel pretty happy overall, you know, especially having friends like you. Uh, so <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. I, I mean, I, you're I, one I, of the I, main I, ones that I call. I guess I have my own intoxicating effect. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> oh, don't matter yourself, buddy. Oh, that's a joke. <laughs> I know, I'm just guy. kidding. But, um, yeah. you know, I do want to ask you a serious question though, Rich. Um, so when you committed your crime and you were sentenced to life in prison, because you're sharing with us about your mom, your grandparents, the love that they instilled in you, the values they poured into you, how did they receive the information that their son, their grandson was going to be sentenced, sent to prison for life? I think they were devastated. I think they were heartbroken. I think they, they felt uh, helpless. There was nothing they could do for me. They needed to let me uh, go, hit rock bottom, mm. bump my head. They didn't expect, nobody expected a life sentence. Nobody in my family's ever been to prison. Mm. Um, even me, I thought, you know, okay, maybe five or 10 years. Uh, it's the nineties and giving people life like candy. And yeah. not that I didn't deserve an excessive amount of time or the amount of time I got, but, um, I think they were blown away that, you know, my family believes you go, you do the crime, you do the time and you tell the truth, you mess up sort of like your dad, you know, tell mm -hmm. the truth, just go and tell them the truth. Yeah. Not knowing that when you do go and tell the truth, that they're using it as a to try to get you to die in there and that doesn't mean that we didn't have our part in getting ourselves there but i don't think that um the the, the systems come from is more of like the punishment model where they want to keep you there for as long as possible oh you're 15 who cares oh you're 17 who cares what matters is is let's throw him away for as long as possible because he's irredeemable. And mm -hmm. our family members know that everybody's redeemable. They know that anybody can change. And um, right. so to hear that amount of time was probably uh, devastating for them. And mm -hmm. I don't think I got a visit from 1998 until um, late 1999, somewhere around November or December 1999. 
Now, yeah. were you were you already in prison by that time, or were you still in county? No, I was in prison um, in uh, December of 1998. Okay. So I spent from August of 98 until March of 2019. Um, All right. So, and you had never been in any type of like incarceration or anything like that prior. I had one misdemeanor prior. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I got a 15 day, 15 days in the county jail. Um, okay. That's all. Uh, that's that's all I had as far as uh, arrests or arrest history. So you were, you were 20 years old when you committed your crime and were sentenced to life in prison. And tell us a little bit about your initial experience. On did you start off on a level four? Maximum security. Started off in level four, Calipatria. Okay, so tell maximum us a little security. bit about your, your initial experience at 20 years old on a level four maximum security prison uh, for the first time. I think in the county jail, you hear all the war stories. You hear how crazy and uh, a level four is. So I knew I was probably going to go there with 25 to life. So I started asking as many questions as I could. And um, so I didn't know what to expect, but I just went there. You know, I, I never was a formally uh, jumped in gang member from a, from a neighborhood. So knowing that being born in Southern California, going, living in, uh, in Southern California, that I would automatically be placed under the uh, Southern Hispanic umbrella. Um, and so I figured do whatever it takes to survive. Once I got there, uh, I remember walking in the building, putting on the hardest face that I could. And the goal was keep the space suit alive. You know, if I'm going to, if I'm in space, don't, don't, don't let anything happen in space suit. You're in prison. Don't let nothing happen to yourself. Do whatever it takes, um, uh, to, to, to make it, I need to make it out of here one day. You know, you, you, you know, the feeling of going in 90, you 99, me 98. And then my earliest possible release date was until December of 2021. Here we are. It's not even December, 2021 yet. So looking out that far ahead, you know, um, it just seems like an impossibility, but something that God created in us, I think, is meant to survive, to be resilient, do whatever it takes. And so, I, I mean, I was terrified, but I just tried to keep it inside and not let it be seen on the outside. And that was the first prison where I saw... Uh, murders take place. I had never seen anybody murdered on the outside, you know, going in, attempted murder, home invasion, first degree burglary, litany of felonies for, for my life offense. Um, but then going going um, to a level four and seeing somebody just killed in cold blood on the yard. And the crazy thing is they had video cameras on that yard and all five buildings, 180 design. And they literally put the yard down, everybody's laying on their stomach, go watch the video see who the person was who done it took the body off took the person off the yard and then i heard resume yard hmm. and that was you know it wasn't a, a racial incident because you know it would have been locked down on something like that but they took it as a one-on-one -on -one thing and i said wow they just put the yard back up after this guy just stabbed him i didn't know that he was dead but it certainly looked like he was in trouble right and um so I knew that was a place where you could lose your life. It was serious business. When did you, um, 
when did you come to the realization that you didn't want your life to be just that? That's a great question. I initially was like Ted says, go along to get along, do whatever it takes. So I had a, a, a Sally, a cellmate who, um, was one of the shot callers on the yard. Uh, he was, as they say, uh, the southern, other, under the southern, southern umbrella, uh, uh, one of the members of the Mesa, the table, the leadership on the yard. And um, he was selling heroin and cocaine and methamphetamines. And so he had everything he ever wanted in the cell. Um, and I didn't. So one thing I learned early on, he was the one that, you know, as they say, gave me my schooling. You know, you need to have a hustle. What's your hustle? You got money coming in? No. Okay, you need to have a hustle. I can't just support you and feed you. You're a young guy. Learn how to draw. Learn how to do something. So um, I wasn't a drawer. I, I didn't. I wasn't a sewer. You know, uh, I wasn't going to do laundry or iron people's clothes. So um, I learned how to make alcohol. And by the time he taught me, you know, probably every two weeks, I'm making three to five gallons, selling uh, selling weed selling some of it for weed, smoking with him. He's bringing in uh, heroin, cocaine, meth. And for the first time, I got introduced to using needles with him. And he asked me if I wanted to get high. And he slammed me for the first time in my life with a big dose of heroin. And I felt what that was like in a prison cell for the first time. And um, pretty much every time he asked me, you know, yes, it was an escape. That's part of the reason why I did it. Uh, it was uh, an escape from prison the ability to feel a high that inside of there and, and numb the pain of what my reality was. Um, and it was also for a way that I thought I would fit in to survive. You know, if I'm getting high with you, most likely you got my back and he had some, some clout there as well. And so, <clears throat> yeah, we kept using for about 10 months and I knew that, you know, looking down at my arms, I'm, I was glad my family wasn't visiting me at the time. They definitely weren't getting letters about, me uh, doing heroin now, using needles now, something I never did on the outside. So for me to, one night we used way too much. Um, we were uh, used heroin and we were on the brink of death. We were doing Belushi's. Um, and I remember him not being able to move on the bottom bunk. This is a pretty big guy, 5'10", 190. Um, and he was saying, don't let me die. Please don't let me die. And in my mind, was I was thinking, how am I going to not let you die when I'm thinking I'm going to die? I can barely, my heart would go bump, wait like three seconds. Maybe maybe it was three seconds, maybe it was two, but boom. And the best I could do was barely lean over the slightest to look down there and I'd just say, are you okay? And barely being able to talk. And my voice didn't sound like that. I believe that. But, you know, mm. Heroin puts that strong frog in sure. your throat. And um, I just remember that B.B. King live in San Quentin was on live on repeat in the old super threes. And he was singing the thrill is gone. And that song was going playing over and over, you know, thrill is gone. And I was thinking, man, here I am 21 years old in a level four with 25 alive about to die of a heroin overdose. And my grandma, my mom, my grandpa, my sister, my stepdad, the people that love me the most in this world and have supported me uh, through thick and thin, they're going to find out that their son, their grandson, their, their brother uh, died as a drug addict in prison with a life sentence. And 
I have felt I had a strong feeling of dying and I had a stronger feeling that I had failed them. I had failed society. I had hurt and harmed so many people that I was a complete failure, that I had failed myself, that all the uh, good things that I had accomplished, you know, graduating from high school or joining the Air Force, uh, becoming an electrician, that I had flushed it all down the tube for drugs. And here I am, I'm going to die. So in that moment, um, I just called out to God in the realest way that I ever had in my life. And I said, God, help me. I don't want to die as a drug addict in prison. If you can change me, change me. Get me out of this level four. Help me get my points dropped so I can get to a level three where there might be some programming, start fresh. Um, Help me to tell this guy tomorrow that I'm not using ever again. And, um, you know, help me, save me. You know, I believe in you. I was a person who used to say that I didn't believe in God. I was... uh, so-called atheist and really that was just pride and rebellion and not wanting to admit uh what i really believed and when i was alone at night i definitely called out to god um but all the pride and rebellion uh, and hatred for religion led me to tell people that but in reality i wanted god i knew that um i needed to really change and nothing else had worked and uh so i just asked god to save me and change me and the next day i told my celly I'm not using it ever again. He's like, yeah, right. You know, and he didn't believe me. And he continued to do his thing, use heroin for another eight years before he surrendered his life finally. And um, so um, the last thing I would say is um, that was the beginning. Mm. That was the beginning for me. So now, you know, we've spoken a lot about the work that we did together. Um, me, you, Ted, Matt, but there's really 19 years of your 21 years of incarceration. There's 19 years of transformational work that you were engaged in, um, not only spiritually, but also with the development of groups. I spoke a little bit about Toastmasters. You also founded CGA and, and were part were instrumental in several other groups and, and self-help opportunities. Which of those engagements over the 19 years of work you did inside of prison stand out to you as the most valuable and why for you? I think it was working with you guys with, with Jesse Bonderman and Mm -hmm. Cornerstone project. They were the best of all groups in there. And we took their stuff and put it on steroids and created our quest program and, and continue to do these workshops on the inside with Hartnell college with, uh, other, uh, others of our, our brothers that are incarcerated with us. And the reason why it was, it's about hyper responsibility. So many people want to want to take people through programs where, you know, they, 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 they use the trauma to kind of excuse behavior. And, and it's two things that are going on. One, the trauma is real. We had trauma. There's a lot of things that we, and most people could talk about while they were growing up. That's real. That needs healing therapy to be addressed. But there's the other side of it. Let's not use that trauma as an excuse to justify our criminality. There's a lot of people that experience trauma and they don't go to prison with life. They don't go stab people, kill people, shoot people, things like that. So how come they did it? And how come you did? 
Well, eventually mm. you, you got to hold up some beliefs and started making some choices. Are you willing to change those beliefs? Are you willing to address those beliefs? We got in Cornerstone and they took that hyper responsible approach. And I, and I'll always remember the day when they gave us that football analogy, mm. which was, you know, I, I thought I was, uh, by the time we worked with them in 2012, 2013, I, like you said, had already been the president of Toastmasters graduate in there as a valedictorian teaching and preaching in the chapel uh founded toastmasters it was 2008 it was 2008 and um avp cga had a bunch of groups under my belt thought i was doing something but i got in there and they dressed me down about being arrogant and, and prideful and and i was thinking like man you guys you know i was offended i was defensive and and i remember the football analogy they gave is imagine you you won a game 40 to zero and your coach brings you into the the film room to look at the film, and he's like, "Jay, you know, you missed that block right there. You missed that tackle right there, and and, and you missed that ball. You know, you could have caught that touchdown right there, and that would have made it forty-seven to zero. And 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 most of us who are incarcerated would think like, "What the heck's your problem? We won forty to zero. Why are we even watching this video?" And their perspective was, "I'm not here to pat you on the back for the good things you did in here." I'm here to help you become the best human being that you could possibly be and to help you to look in the mirror to address the real issues that got you in here. Those, as, as the board talks about, those contributing factors, those causative factors, those ways of thinking, ways of believing that led you to commit this crime, led you, led you to become, uh, living a criminal lifestyle. Sure. So... So to this day, that hyper responsibility, you know, you've said it before in our in our ready for life training recently, you know, the problem is always me. What if the pro- what if the perspective that you lived your life by was the problem is always me? Most people will hate that perspective. Mm. The thing like the problem is not always me. The problem is everybody else. Don't you get it? And what, what if you own the perspective that the problem is me? And the way what we mean by that is. What if you took a hyper-responsible look to look at the way that you're relating to people, to life, to organizations, to relationships every single time and, and add your part? And how you're contributing to those things. And how you're contributing. You know, and even if that other person, like, like you, you always say, even if they're 95% responsible and you are 5% responsible, are you going to play the victim and try to excuse your 5% like most people do? Or are you going to come humbly and own your contribution to what you did or did not do with that 5%? And most people are unwilling to do that. From my experience out here, my experience out here, so many people are willing to end relationships, lifelong relationships, family relationships. Why? Over something so petty because they're unwilling to own their part. Well, I'll say this. You, uh, you definitely owned your responsibility, took accountability for the choices you made when you committed your crime, which was evidenced by the result that you received when you went to the board of parole hearings and were found suitable on your initial hearing. And I'll never forget that because when, when, when we found out when you came back and you shared the testimony of what the commissioner actually said about how your, the way you chose to show up and, and own your contributions produced healing in your victims' hearts. Uh, that was profound. Yeah. And they actually stayed there to hear, hear the, the verdict that you were going to be released, um, which is, again, yeah. that's, that's unprecedented. 
So I wanted to say that, but what I really want to ask you, because we've only got a little over 10 minutes left, is I want to ask you, Rich, because you're the first member of our team to be released. So you're the first one to really experience the challenges in reentry. Would you be willing to spend a little five or six minutes talking about the challenges that you individually faced in reentry when you came home? Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, I think I could barely, I could barely sleep the first five or six days. The most I could sleep is maybe two hours. There's just that sensory uh, overload where um, uh, I could hear my heart beating. I slept in a, a room where there was no light and my heart would beat fast because I wasn't used to sleeping in darkness or you can't see your hand right here in front of you. Um, you know, we're used to being woken up in the night with a flashlight and there's always light coming in either through the day room or through the, through the, through the moonlight and uh, being in the darkness made my heart beat fast. I remember, um, uh, going to a transitional house, coming here to Sacramento, a place I never lived before because I, as crop organization, we said, well, that's going to be our headquarters. So that's where I'm going. Oh, you don't know anybody there. You never lived there before. So what? I'm going to take a stand for my team and doing that though, being a, in a transitional house, most people don't know tra the transitional houses are in the worst parts of neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. I remember somebody blessing me with a blue pair of shoes and I'm up here in Northern California and I never wore those blue shoes. Um, I, I remember not walking, not leaving the house to go to the liquor store, the drug store, you know, the, not the drug store, but the, um, the grocery store, unless I was with other people because I didn't know anybody and I didn't, uh, I just didn't trust myself walking through a neighborhood. I didn't know. I didn't want to get killed. There was actually a drive by shooting at the house that the transitional house that I was at. Um, and then after leaving there, um, and, and the tra that transitional house was uh, called restoration house, a faith based, mm -hmm. faith based program, pretty good place to be. Um, living with seven or eight other people in a house where a couple of them are committed to still doing drugs. Right. And it's like, dude, you're up here doing drugs in my area, not in my room, but in my area. If the parole comes over here, you go back and do your little 15 days. I go back with life. Right. So like get that stuff out of here. And then them not expecting us to tell, you know, right. Oh man, don't tell, don't be a snitch. Well, you're putting my life in jeopardy. Right. So, so, uh, you know, what was your, get that stuff out of here. What was your experience with like services from, from parole as far as like, I, I now, I mean, granted you were a part of our team, so you had an employment opportunity awaiting, yeah. but outside of that, what did, what did parole extend to you in way of like services or direction for employment? The only thing I ever remember them extending to me is bus passes. So if you need some bus passes, come over here and get some bus passes. I don't remember anything about housing clothes. There's, there's a, if you do go with the Sacramento County based coalition transitional housing program for lifers, they don't let you choose where you want to go. The house I was going to had seven men there. It was faith-based program. It had been there 15, 16 years. If you go with, if you go with them, I paid my own rent, but if you go with the CDCR, system where they pay your rent well what happens is they put you wherever you want you might be in a house full of a bunch of short timers still doing dope and here i am as a lifer knowing if i if i mess up and, and they're not going to come parole is not going to say like oh that wasn't yours because it was on your side of the room they don't care they have totally objectify us out here 
And, you know, you come out, we came out with, you know, almost having a, ba- a job, uh, a mass, almost a master's degree, you know, advanced certifications. They don't see us in that way. They still objectify us and look at us like less than. They still to this day say, oh, hey, how this is one of my lifers. This is one of my lifers. I'm like, fool, I'm not a lifer. I've been out two years and three months. Um, I don't know how you, that, but that just reveals, their language reveals how they see us. Um, so, and then, and then trying to find an apartment, you know, um, by then, you know, I'm, uh, I'm making, uh, you know, and I don't say this, I say this in a humble way, but somewhere above 40,000 a year and every apartment that I go to, um, that before even filling out the paperwork, they asked me, do you have two years of rental history? Do you have a 640 credit score? Um, do you have uh, a year of pay stubs? I didn't have any of that. Oh, well, don't right. even fill out the paperwork. So, so it, it's just, uh, again, an objectification. Are you a felon? Yeah. Oh, don't even fill it out. Right. Now, what, what, what happened? Because I remember you were saying you had some issues with your credit um, where there was, some, there was some identity theft that happened while you were in prison. Yeah. Was there any, was there any services to help you from, you know, whether it was parole or any type of reentry service to help you get your credit together? Absolutely not. Mm. Nothing to help me get my credit together then. And no one to, to give me any advice. Matter of fact, to be able to prove it to the credit bureau, somebody has stolen my identity for 12 years, ran up $70,000 in debt, 19 fraudulent accounts. Somebody in Idaho, who has a truck parked outside of their house. Once I realized how to use Google geography or whatever maps, I could see this truck parked outside their house from Ally Bank, a bank that's not even in California. I I had to fight with Perot to give me a tracking sheet to prove, now I had to fight with them to prove that I was actually in prison. Man, give me something to show I was in prison so I can show these these credit repair, I mean, these credit uh, agencies. And then I filed a police report. They didn't care. They never have got back to me, but... Uh, here we are two years later. I've only been able to clear 12 of the 19 fraudulent accounts. And now I finally found somebody who's a, a master credit builder who's working with me to clear it up. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, good. it's sad. Well, the good news is you're over halfway there. Yep. And, I mean, I say it tongue-in-cheek because the reality is is that if you didn't have that responsible perspective, if you didn't have that resource and how you were relating to situations, you might have thrown your hands up a long time ago. Yeah, I'd give up. But you haven't. And, I don't uh, give a look. I don't quit. That part. So, you know, you're a, a remarkable human being, Richard Morales. And, and the last question I want to ask you is, what's next? What's next for you? You know, even, um, even working with you with the Ready for Life program, our associates going through our leadership development, digital literacy, financial literacy, um, training uh, ultimately for our associates to get careers in the tech industry. I have found, you know, we're working from 5.30 to 9.30 at night. You you stay on from 7 uh, all the way the whole time. I get off at 7.30 after the leadership development. I have found that time rewarding. The, the ability to spend my life. Yeah, sometimes we work 60-hour weeks, maybe more, sometimes less. But it's rewarding work on things that we have built, things that we've been talking about doing for a decade in there as brothers. And now to be out here and doing it, we didn't even envision this half the stuff that we're doing now. You know, we thought we had a big vision and we're walking around as visionaries. We're not even, we barely even touched 15, 20% of it. Mm-hmm. And, and so, yes, it's hard, 
but it's necessary to make an impact, to impact social justice, to impact financial justice, to impact criminal justice reform, to impact restorative justice. You know, this is work that I've come to love. When I can see that aha moment in one of our brothers and sisters who were formerly incarcerated, who, who didn't believe that they could do more than work in the kitchen or work in construction and who are overwhelmed by being parents and living in poverty, to see them when we, when we work with them uh, come to humanize their own selves and believe that they can interrupt their limiting beliefs, that they can believe and achieve new things that they never imagined before. And not in a positive thinking kind of way, but in a positive thinking plus positive action kind of way. Okay. To see the lights come on and realize that real transformation of my thinking is possible. There's no greater feeling than that, other than the deep experience of being in love uh, or the love of God. So why not just keep doing that? I'm gonna, I wanna continue to grow my uh, skill set in website development, my skill set in podcasting. You know, we work with Nate Darling. I haven't even, I'd love to go through his, his, um, his mentoring and his training that he offers at his podcast studio at Darling New Media. Um, he offers training so people can learn from scratch. You know, he helps in so many ways. I'd like to, to learn more about, um, you know, creating on social media, becoming a creator. I'd like to become a creator for crop, um, on YouTube, especially we want to get to that, you know, thousand, that thousand subscribers mark and continue to grow this and, and monetize our podcast. There's so much, so much more for us to do. And, uh, you know, it just takes more time, man. Time, time. <laughs> so all, I, all I've got to say is watch out, Joe Rogan. <laughs> yeah, we'll get there. You know, I'll watch him. Any spare time I get, I'm watching Joe Rogan. I'm watching yeah. YouTube videos. You know, Mitch Gray told me early on, he said, uh, you know, if it's, if you have something working with crop organization regarding finance, talk to my wife. If it, if it has something to do with, um, legal, talk to our, our attorney. If it, if it has something to do with, um, financial talk or money, uh, accounting, talk to Dale, but rich, he told me, don't call me, uh, until you have YouTube it, Googled it, find out, use your tools. He got me podcasters paradise. And I, I now YouTube everything, Google everything before even going and asking people those questions, you know, get that entrepreneurial mindset, he said. And so I've watched thousands of YouTube videos to, to learn. And that's what I encourage my incarcerated brothers and sisters to do who may be watching this eventually is get out here, YouTube and Google everything. Google's your friend, YouTube's your friend, figure it out and use a no excuses mindset like crop, take full and complete responsibility for what you did, what you caused, take responsibility for your future, own it. And, um, and, and own your future. You know, if it's going to happen, you're going to make it happen. The last thing I'll say is in October, I'll be getting married. Yes, and sir. I'm super excited to be marrying the love of my life, my soulmate, my beautiful uh, queen, uh, Brenda. Uh, just super in love. And that feels so rewarding to find somebody who supports not only me, but crop, uh, our work, and um, our relationships. It's, uh, well, congratulations, Rich. And I would I would ask you to to plug where people could find you, but considering you're the host of the podcast and the host of our website, I'm going to assume that they know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, thank you so much for being with us and sharing some of your testimony, Rich. Uh, this has been another episode of the Prison Post, and we look forward to you all joining us joining us on the next episode. Peace. Thank you for listening to the Prison Post, a production of the Crop Organization. 
We'll be sharing more stories from the world of prison reform and restorative justice. So please join us. You can listen to The Prison Post on all major podcasting platforms. Subscribe to our video cast on YouTube and like us on Facebook at The Prison Post and at Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs.